the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Listeners, welcome back today. I have part three with Michael Poe discussing PA practice and reimbursement. And today we're going to talk about something that we all need to think about that we don't think about a lot. That's fraud and abuse. Michael, can you please explain to our listeners the difference between an error, abuse, and fraud from a CMS standpoint? And who's responsible for the claims that are submitted for their service? Happy to talk about this. And I will say up front that I'm not an attorney and I don't play one on television. But I have seen enough situations in which this has been a real big issue for healthcare professionals. And having been on the other end, that is having to be an expert witness for the government in a couple of large fraud and abuse cases, lets me know that individual practices or healthcare systems cannot out-resource the government when it comes to fraud and abuse, which is why I think it's so important to talk about these issues and to have a basic understanding of how these things affect everyday practice to make sure you're doing everything possible to avoid getting in that trap of even the allegations of fraud and abuse. So it's a little bit hard sometimes to make a distinction, but an error, a mistake, is something that's unintentional. You coded up a service and you bill it out at a 99215, and it really should have been a 99214. That's an understandable mistake in terms of coding and documentation. Anyone can be off by one level of a coding. That's not going to be a problem to Medicare. That's not going to jump into the issue of fraud or abuse. However, a dedicated pattern of overbilling by one or two code levels on every patient you see does come into a different level of concern in terms of auditors regarding fraud and abuse. Typically, abuse or fraud gets into the issue of an attempt to mislead, an attempt to do something or say something that actually didn't happen. For example, for fraud, if you tried to bill for a service that never quite occurred, patient had a visit, they didn't show up, you still billed for that encounter. That gets you into the area of fraud. If we look at abuse, that comes more in the area of what you've done in terms of patterns of behavior, such as upcoding on a regular basis for all of your services. That becomes an abuse kind of issue. Each one has its own requirements in terms of intent, and each one has different rules in terms of what the penalties are. But I can assure you that they are fairly strict. And once Medicare or an auditor gets into a problem area in a practice, they don't have to stop at that one problem. They can start to look at other records that you have and then kind of go a little bit further. Now, they can't go back 10 years on you and find out things you've done that far back, but they can go back a good three years to determine what other kind of patterns that you've had that might be inappropriate. And once they find those patterns, they can extrapolate. If they find a 5 or 10% error rate in your codes and your billing, they can assume that all of your billing has been off by that 5 or 10% and then extract some fairly large penalties. That's why it's so important in my mind to understand the basics and for PAs in particular to help share any new information about PA billing with their coding and billing folks to make sure that everybody is aware and on the same page. Who's responsible? Let's say I submit claims and my practice is getting the payment for this. Who's responsible for those claims? Is it me or is it my practice? Yeah, that's the part that seems a little unfair at times because what Medicare says is that if you are the provider of record, and you are the responsible party as a healthcare professional for that claim submission. The problem with that is that oftentimes healthcare professionals aren't the ones who drop the claim to Medicare. They don't submit it electronically. There's normally a practice manager or a billing or coding person in the office or the institution or facility 
that's actually doing the submission of claim. And so if you don't have control of that process, yet you're ultimately responsible. Now, when Medicare finds a problem and they think money should be coming back, the good thing is that comes back from the person or the entity that received the reimbursement. So it's likely not coming off the PA in terms of financial dollars. But the fact is there is this kind of symbiotic relationship or synergistic relationship between the PA and their billing provider. And you have to make sure that everybody's on the same page in terms of information and everybody's got some stake in the game here. Michael, you had talked about who gets paid for the PA's work, and that kind of segues into what you were just talking about. And there's a concern about this information for our hospital-based colleague. Can you please explain that a little bit about who gets paid for the PA's work? For a number of years, PAs were employed by hospitals, and they took care of the patients of the physicians who might have worked for the hospitals. But in the early days, it was more likely that there were private physicians and surgeons in the community who weren't employed by the hospital but yet their patients were being sent and cared for in the hospital that employed the PAs. And it was very typical for PAs to provide care as needed for any patient in that facility. In the last 10 years or so, what we've discovered is that there is a concern from the Medicare point of view in terms of how that service system works. So what we know from Medicare point of view is that they've got policies that say only the employer of a PA or an NP is entitled to receive reimbursement or professional work product from those employed PAs and NPs. So if, if I'm a PA working in a hospital and I'm, I've got patients from private outside community physicians and they come to the hospital, whatever I do professionally for that patient really needs to accrue in terms of reimbursement or benefit to the hospital that employs me. It shouldn't accrue to the outside private community physician. So the example is that if there's an outside surgeon who uses your hospital and you're a PA employed by the hospital and the Medicare program has already paid that surgeon a certain amount of money in the global surgical payment that covers the pre, intra, and post-op care for 90 days for a total hip, for example. Any of that post-op work that's being provided should be provided by the surgeon or a member of the surgeon's team because that's the one who's been paid for it. However, it's not unusual for PAs who are employed by the hospital to also deliver a certain level of care to that same patient. And if those PAs employed by the hospital are providing the post-op care instead of the surgeon or a member of the surgeon's team, Medicare begins to look at that as providing free service or free labor to that private surgeon. I tend to use the example, if I'm a hospital administrator and I give a surgeon, a private community surgeon who's not employed by the hospital, $100,000, and I say, Dr. Smith, you've been a great partner, really love having you in a hospital, just want to give you this small gift just to let you know how much we care for you. Some people might consider that to be a bribe of sorts. In other words, I'm giving this surgeon money so that he or she continues to use my hospital, keeps my beds full, keeps my OR rolling. That's not cool with Medicare in terms of what the appearance of that is. But then I say, what if that same hospital gives that private surgeon $100,000 worth of PA or NP time in terms of the treatment and provision of care to their patients. Is that any different? And the answer to Medicare is no, it's the same problem. Anytime you're giving something free to another person for no obvious value or reason, that can be considered an inducement for that surgeon to continue to use that hospital and that doesn't meet Medicare's guidelines. And so what I try to tell folks is that there are ways to work through this. PAs, of course, can provide care to any patient at any time, 
This is not about how and where you provide care. It's about making sure that your employer, that is the hospital, is getting appropriate remuneration because they're the ones paying your salary and benefit package from that outside surgeon to care for the patient. And so there are leasing arrangements and other things to be done to make sure that we mitigate any concern that Medicare might have in terms of this looking like an inducement to the outside surgeon. And that really is the crux of this matter. And what I would say to most PAs is that if you find yourself in this situation where on a regular basis you're providing care to patients of outside private surgeons or physicians, let's have a conversation about that. That's not the time to go to your administrator or your service line director and say, hey, this could be illegal, let's not do this. Let us have a conversation with you and my reimbursement team department and talk about ways to mitigate the concern and ways to find usable ways in which we can maintain the professional workflow component, but not run against the issues of fraud and abuse. Especially important for our hospital-based employees, hospital-based PA employees, I should say, uh, really take heed with this. I threw in a question here, Michael. I, I don't think it was in the talk, but it was just curious after you went through that last what if a PA is employed by a hospital, is a hospital employee, but then moonlights in a private practice urgent care, and that's a different employer? How should that PA be hired? Can you be an employee in two separate places and bill Medicare, or should you be an independent contractor, or does that question even have merit? Yeah, it absolutely does, and it's common. And the nice thing is that because the Academy was able to accomplish getting direct payment to PAs, it opens up the employment possibilities for PAs and gives a lot more flexibility in terms of that process. If you're doing part-time work, oftentimes the other entity doesn't want to go through a full employment arrangement with you. So at that point, a 1099 independent contract relationship might be the perfect vehicle. The nice thing is that you can then make sure that your NPI number gets associated with a different tax ID number, a different employer, and then Medicare can pay to that employer or to you as a PA when you're working that part-time or weekend job. So yes, you can actually have Medicare paying to different entities based on how you set up the enrollment process, and you can have two or three or four different employment opportunities coming your way as a PA and have those being paid for separately without jeopardizing your main job, for example. And at this point, PAs have the same flexibility as physicians and anyone else in terms of participating in more innovative and unique employment situations. Yeah, you could work three jobs and have a house in the Hamptons. <laughs> I'm all for it. So we're on fraud and abuse. Michael, can you please explain for our listeners a little bit about the anti-kickback Stark and False Claims Act liability you mentioned in your talk? And there was a reference in, uh, well, I'll tell you what, there's a couple of references you gave that were great case examples. I was hoping you could go through those for our listeners. This gets interesting because oftentimes the line is blurred between these various issues. Stark is an issue in which really applies to physicians. And that's kind of a misnomer that PAs have to have, have to worry about Stark. And what I say is that while Stark only applies to physicians, we need to be careful that PAs don't abuse it in a way that makes the Medicare program or Congress come back and strictly apply it to PAs. Stark is an issue for physicians when they refer patients to another entity in which they have a vested interest. That means someone within their immediate family has some kind of financial relationship. So if I'm a physician and I'm in orthopedics and I refer patients to a PT center down the road that is owned by my brother or my spouse, for example, that gets into the issue of Stark as to whether or not you're being fair in terms of where that patient goes 
or if you're going to be directing that patient to someone where you're going to have some kind of financial gain. What we say to PAs in terms of Stark is that while technically the Stark provisions allow a PA to, who's working for that orthopedic surgeon to refer patients to that same PT center that's owned by the spouse of the doctor, you have to be really careful about what the appearance is and whether or not there is a viewpoint that the physician is simply saying to the PA, I can't refer patients to my wife's PT center, but you can do that on my behalf. That would be inappropriate. But if that PA decides that, hey, this is the best center, it's closest around, I'm going to refer patients there, then technically that's appropriate under the law. So a bit of an odd continuum there with the Stark issue. The other part of this is false claims. And there are certain provisions legally in terms of what can happen to any healthcare provider if they run afoul of this particular provision. And more broadly, what it means is that in addition to taking back money that the government thinks was inappropriately paid, either you billed for a service you didn't provide or you upcoded a service that really should have been a lower level, they can take back the extra money that was paid to you by Medicare, but they can go farther than that. What they can also do is put certain kinds of penalties in place if they think it was an intentional act. And some of the penalties can be as high as $21,000 per incident that they find that was inappropriately done by a healthcare provider. And perhaps one of the worst things they can do is exclude you from the Medicare or Medicaid or any other federal government program of healthcare for a period of time, one year, three years, five years. And the mistake of running afoul of that and to tell your employer or a future employer, yeah, I'm really a great healthcare professional. I provide good quality care. My patients love me. Only thing is I can't build Medicare for five years. That's a non-starter. And so I want to encourage PAs not to get into that situation and making sure that they follow the rules that are in play. The last issue is the anti-kickback issue. And that's the one that we talked about a little bit in the previous example. I had to be an expert witness in a trial in Chicago. I didn't necessarily want to be, but the government said I probably needed to be. And therefore I agreed after some wrangling back and forth to participate in this trial. I'm not gonna go through all the details of it, but it was about anti-kickback and whether or not this hospital was giving free NPs and PAs to a surgeon with the agreement that the surgeon was going to, or the physician was going to continue to provide patients to that hospital in a sweetheart deal, that became a violation of anti-kickback. The result of this two-year situation, long investigation and long trial, was that the CEO of the hospital, the chief financial officer, and the chief operating officer all went to jail. The physician in question, who didn't settle out of court, got three years in jail and had to pay back $780,000 in penalties. This particular doc was 69 years of age when this trial got finally adjudicated. So it's very serious stuff. The good part is that the PAs or the NPs that were involved were not really part of the scheme and therefore they weren't charged and didn't have to deal with any of this other information. But it's really serious stuff. I try to scare people a little bit to let them know how bad it can be. The simple fact is that unless you are egregious, unless you are really planning something devious, you're never going to be in this kind of situation. But again, the encouragement is to have enough of an understanding of your surroundings to say, hey, this doesn't sound quite right. I may need to get some more information. And my goal here is to make sure that every PA will protect his or her license and ability to practice and not run afoul of these kind of provisions.
Thanks for that. And, you know, for our listeners, if anyone has questions about this or, you know, it's confusing, the AAPA has resources where you can reach out and talk to someone or there's some written material, I believe, as well. So use them as a good resource for your questions. Yeah, Sam, I'll just say that we have a team of four people in the research on the reimbursement team, and we are always happy to do casework for our members and to help be the buffer. If you're not quite sure of something and you need somebody else to talk about, you know, what the billing and coding is. We're happy to be conduits on your behalf. Also, I just want to make sure we point out the fact that we've got some really great publications. One is the Essential Guide to PA Reimbursement. The other is a PA Regulatory Guide. And these are publications that have, you know, 40, 50, 60 pages of detailed information about all the issues we've talked about here and a lot more that we haven't talked about. And one of the good things is that when we put out information, we don't just say, here's what we believe to be true. We back it up with statute, with regulation, with information from Medicare. And so when you're out there in the field and somebody suggests that you as a PA can't do something or can't be covered or won't be reimbursed, go and get the details. I never say no if anybody has something negative about PAs. I simply say, I've not heard of that. Can you point me to the citation? Can you give me the details about what program says that? About 80% of the time, there are no details to back it up. It's just hearsay, but the fact is we have to work on good, detailed information and not hearsay. Perfect and well said. Thanks, Michael. Listeners, please join us again next week when we discuss payer policies for PA services. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. We also welcome you to visit our website, paos.org, where members can download virtual conference content and get Category 1 CME. Also, if you're a non-member, and you're interested in our CME content, please visit the aapa.org Learning Central for the PAOS virtual content.